Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Todd Dexheimer. He began investing in real estate in 2008. Today, his company's owned $500 million worth of multifamily, senior housing, and commercial real estate. Todd has completed over 150 flips, including 20-unit mobile home park and a ski resort. So thanks so much for coming on today, Todd. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate you having me on. So give us a little background on yourself uh, before you got involved with real estate uh, investing. I know you had a actual full-time W-2 and then yeah. how you made the transition to real estate. Well, before I got started in real estate, I was a, was a high school and middle school uh, teacher. I was teaching uh, technology education or industrial tech and teaching wood shop, um, you know, metals, welding, automotive, uh, all, architecture, engineering, all kinds of stuff like that. So there's a lot of, a lot of fun at times, <laughs> uh, but also uh, just some things I didn't like, mostly the, really the politics within the school, you know, you got to do certain, you had to do certain things that just were a waste of time and energy and effort. And then they would switch it up the next year or the next like six months later. No, you got, never mind. You have to do this process. And it's like, all right, you guys are ridiculous. <laughs> um, so, so anyways, I, <clears throat> I did that for five years and, uh, the last, the last year was a part-time year worked out really well. I was able to go part-time uh, teaching and then really focusing on real estate. And and it all started really with reading just some books. Like uh, I, I was just, um, I was just kind of bored at night. And so I'm reading <laughs> some real estate books and I, I'm not a big TV watcher. Uh, so, you know, uh, pounding a bunch of real estate and entrepreneurial books. And I'm like, this is, this is what I could do. I could <laughs> do this real estate thing. So that's, that's how it began. Nice. So uh, when you were starting, it was um, when you're starting out, was there anything other than you start reading books? Was there anything that kind of had you choose real estate over another, I guess you'd say, um, investment vehicle? I would say familiarity with mm -hmm. um, comfortable, right? So I was I worked construction through the summers um, for really what I got the first year I got out of, out of high school, I was working for a remodeling company and 
did you know every every summer worked for a remodeling company or the same remodeling company and even when i was teaching uh in the summers i'd work for that remodeling company and then i'm teaching about you know kind of construction and and different things like that so i would say maybe just that familiarity um it felt pretty natural um to be able to run the numbers and analyze it and, uh, just, just feel good about it. But no, I didn't, I didn't like have family or really friends that were really doing it, um, to that extent. So did you start off flipping houses first before getting into the other asset classes that you guys focus on now? So I first started out, uh, doing all kinds of stuff and like, Literally, uh, my first transaction was really three purchases. I purchased a single family home that my wife and I lived in, and we were renovating while we, while we, uh, they call it a house hack or whatever they call it right now. So we, we were, we were living in it. We were renovating. It was a foreclosure. Um, and, and we ended up, you know, I guess slow flipping that, uh, (laughs) I bought a rental house. Uh, with pretty much every last penny that we had in, in savings. And uh, so we bought a rental house that we renovated and uh, started renting. And then I bought another house with a partner who funded that deal. And uh, that was a flip. So nice. Kinda, wow. Kind of started all and, and literally, Charles, like, I don't remember which one I bought first because they're all within <laughs> probably uh, probably a couple of weeks of each other. What was uh what was your meaning for kind of um, switching from flipping houses into getting into more rentals, whether they're single families or multifamilies? Yeah, I never wanted to flip. Yeah, I I, I flipped a lot of houses. I flipped like oh a hundred and fifty or so, um, but that was never my intention. My intention was always to buy rental properties. My intention was very early on to buy apartment buildings. I just didn't know how. And so I had not, not only I had limited beliefs, but I also had limited experience, limited capital, limited connections. And so flipping was the natural and made sense. And, and quite frankly, it was a great time to flip. I was, I was good at it. Um, and so, you know, I had the construction background and all that kind of stuff. So it made a lot of sense. So flipping uh, just became something I, di- I did and I, I enjoyed it and I was good at. And uh, eventually I was just like, okay, now I, I'm burned out and uh, let's transition and, and start doing different things. But by, by the way, at the same time, I was, I was flipping. I was also growing a rental portfolio, but it was mostly like one to four family properties, a couple of small apartment buildings. Um, but, but then that transition to, to multifamily uh, happened at really because I was just kind of like, eh, I'm done. I'm done. Like I'm, I'm kind of burnt out. The market, the market had also shifted uh, differently. You could still make a lot of money in it. This was about 2014, 2015, 2015. Uh, but the market had shifted uh, quite a bit. Foreclosures really weren't raging, and and so you had to you had to approach it differently. And I just didn't want to switch, you know, and learn no. learn. I guess the new strategy. So tell us about your first multifamily real estate investment when you were kind of going into larger properties. I mean, how did that turn out and what did you learn during that process? Man, I mean, I I could tell you about several different ones, but I think I'll tell you about my first kind of bigger one, biggest Mm -hmm. one. Um, And and so 
and I actually bought two properties pretty close to each other, a fairly close time frame there. Uh, and they, they really worked well with each other. But so the, the first really one that I bought that was a syndication, um, that was an 84 unit building. And uh, man, what did I learn from? I learned so much from it. So I went full cycle on this asset completely, which and it ended working out pretty well. We made it a decent amount uh, for the investors. I made a decent amount. Everybody ended up uh, in the end pretty happy, but there was a lot of learning lessons along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, first, first lesson uh, is that, well, first thing I, I took out of it is I no longer will buy a C-class asset. Yeah. C-class locations or C-minus probably locations. It just, to me, there's too much risk mm-hmm. involved when a recession happens. It's the first to go down. It's the farthest to go down. It's the last to go up. Uh, I don't care what people tell you that uh, C-class is going to be great during a recession. It's It never is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it never has been historically. And so I don't know why it would all of a sudden change magically overnight. Um, it just won't happen. And so, so anyway, so that was something I took from it. Uh, it also, it just wasn't, just didn't do the best due diligence. Uh, we weren't, I wasn't really... I didn't hire the right professionals. So for instance, we didn't do full sewer scopes. We didn't really truly inspect the plumbing lines as well as what we should have. Uh, I didn't hire a professional inspector plumber uh, or, or, or plumber to look carefully at those and determine the life expectancy of the plumbing. Um, same thing with the 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 roofs. Uh, I hired a roofing company that was actually a long story, but was uh, hired by the property management company I was going to use, who was actually the current property management company on on the property. So that's oh yeah. So the so they lied completely about the roofs. Um, so so a couple of things went wrong. You know, we had to replace all the roofs day one. Um, wow. Now, the good thing is we budgeted for um, most of the roofs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that was okay, but I didn't plan on doing it like right away. And the, mm-hmm. there was a lot of damage, like literally day one, we closed and it's raining out, uh, I think by day two. And we've got leaks, I mean, units being flooded by water. Um, wow. that's, that's how bad it was. And they covered that all up. Um, during the due diligence walks. And, and so um, things like that, like uh, that, that's another mistake. And unless you know the property management company that's currently managing the property and they've got a great reputation and they've been managing your current assets, or you have a good reason to use them, don't use the current property management company mm-hmm. um, or be very careful with that. And so uh, that, that I would next, or, or I, I have not done that again. Um, and I would just be cautious about doing it if I were. So this management company was owed money by the, the previous owners mm. and uh, they covered a bunch of things up. They, they hid a ton of things. Um, and so we were, you know, kind of caught with our pants down um, for lack of better terms. Uh, they also, fraudulated the books. 
uh, all kinds of wow. stuff. You know, we caught them for some of that stuff. We decided not to use them, hired a different management company. Um, we had some some seller credits that we were able to put in place because of the fraud. Um, but, wow. but it was just a it was just a, a kind of a mess. So uh, lots of lessons learned, man. I got so many more, Charles. I don't know how many you want me to go <laughs> through. Um, but I'd say the the most important lesson is, is just thorough, thorough due diligence and just really pay attention to what you're getting into. Because some of these things that happened to us along the way probably just were unavoidable. And that's just what happens. Like you couldn't have predicted, uh, for instance, we had a plumbing pipe, uh, you know, under the ground, you know, yeah. eight, eight feet underground that ended up bursting um, and flooded four units like that. I wow. don't think we could have predicted. Uh, we also had a gas line rupture underground, you know, wow. that again, we probably couldn't have predicted, but some of the other stuff we definitely could have, if we would have done better due diligence. When was this property built approximately? Well, that's the other thing too, is so if you're going to buy buildings built in the 1970s mm. or, or earlier, and this was 1972, I believe. Um, so if, if you're in the 1970s or earlier, you want to make sure that you really have a heavy plumbing budget um, mm -hmm. and, and a heavy uh, HVAC budget. Those are two major things, like major items that go wrong in these buildings. And I don't care, like time after time after time, unless it's been redone, time after time after time, the plumbing and the HVAC are a huge mess. And you have to budget for them. So now we, we still will buy a 70s built asset um, if it's in the right location. But we are looking carefully at that plumbing and HVAC and everything else. But but we are taking our budget at what we think it'll cost and doubling it. Yeah. There's also like a lot of other things too there that you get. Uh, we just sold like all of our older properties within the last six months. And it was like, you know, stuff you have in those properties are you have the, you know, you have lead, possibly asbestos, aluminum wiring. I mean, there's tons of stuff when you yep. start venturing uh, older than 1980, let's say. And yep. it just, it just, like you said, you just have to budget for it. And a lot of people don't, and a lot of people are buying, like you said, C-class properties, which they haven't been maintained. Like you'd be buying yeah. a B-class property. They're just not because it's just, uh, it's not feasible. And they're, you know, everybody's trying to sell their stuff uh, at the type, top of the market or, you know, get money from stuff. And um, yeah, well, Charles, I mean, what, what happens, right. Is, is you buy an asset, you go, okay, what can I do to, to increase the value? Well, it's everything surface level. That's yep. what my residents are seeing. You're not replacing plumbing pipes because the residents don't see that. So mm -hmm. you're just patching. You're just putting yeah. bands on, on an issue. And these plumbing pipes are, they're, they're older pipes that have a life expectancy of 40 to 50 years. And guess what? That's over. Yeah. And so you are just sitting on a potential disaster. And hopefully you get out in time before that disaster ends up coming to, right. to roost because it's going to be somebody's problem one of these days uh, on, on all of these properties. It's going to be somebody's problem. Yeah. Uh, it, it's crazy. I, I had like years back, I had this uh, small um, commercial property mixed use and uh, we had this leak coming into the basement and one of my plumbers opened the wall and the person had collect, uh, connected to 
copper pipes with flexible, like you would use for an outside fountain pipe mm -hmm. with like the little like screw uh, pipe clamps or whatever. And you're just like, what are people thinking? And yeah. had to go in there. Well, it's just like the amount of shoddy stuff that gets done in these properties um, is overwhelming. You know, it's just, it's, it's crazy. So you really have to be diligent into that. And really it's a du different due diligence process for a seventies or older property versus maybe a newer property where your mechanicals in your roof uh, are, are, you know, more recent and uh, there's, you know, you're using newer electrical and stuff like this. So. Yeah. And you got newer, you know, you got the newer system. So it's easier mm -hmm. to, even when you do have to do repairs, it's just easier. We don't have to now, not always. I mean, there's some things to look out for, like, uh, polybutylene piping, right. And, and things like that. But, but for the most part, if I've got, uh, you know, copper piping, I can either attach new copper piping back onto that to fix a leak, or I can put uh, you know, a, a PAX type piping and it's easy. It's, it's not a problem where if I'm dealing with cast and yeah. or lead and, or, you know, just, just a mess. Yeah, exactly. So tell us about like, um, you've done some like very creative financing over the years. And uh, I think one of them that really piqued my interest was 120 unit building you bought was 8% down. Um, yeah. So tell us about like how you found the how you found this property. And, um, you know, how you were able to get into such a great deal position on it. Yeah, so I told you about the 84 unit. This was a 120 unit that was really close to the 84 unit. And uh, I actually, how I found that property is I had the broker that sell, sold me the 84 unit. I said, look, it's not big enough. I need more units and I want something really close by. Why don't you, uh, why, why don't we just call all the neighboring uh, owners and let's see who wants to sell. And that's exactly what they did. This guy wanted to sell or was ready to sell. And so we negotiated the price with them, but- at that time, I'm like, look, I don't want to do another, I don't want to do a bridge loan and this needs, you know, renovation to it. And so, um, my offer was, you know, paying his price or, mm -hmm. or very close to it, but he's going to finance this property, seller financing. And, um, instead of paying him this big down payment, what we're going to do is we're going to take our renovation budget. Okay. So we're, we're setting up like a bridge loan. We're setting up like a construction loan. So we're taking a renovation budget. We're putting it into an escrow account that we can access, but in a draw process. So as renovations get completed, then we can pay it out of that account. Now, if we default, then he gets to take whatever money is left in that account that hasn't been drawn upon. So he gets that money. So we set actually part of the rent, not the entire renovation budget, actually. Uh, but we set a big portion of the renovation in this escrow account. We gave him a small, a small down payment. And then we kept some working capital to, you know, pay contractors some, some money up front or get materials and stuff like that. Wow. Um, and so that's, that's how we set that deal up. It was, it was all seller financing, no bank, uh, involved. We also did a, um, an entity exchange and it worked out great because it was still seller financing. And so that the entity exchange uh, worked wow. out good. So does that, that allowed us to not have the, the change in taxes due to the purchase mm -hmm. price. Um, and that property worked out really well. I went full cycle with that as well. Again, it's in a C C minus neighborhood. Um, and but, so went full cycle and, and then ended up doing really well on that one. So uh, before you go on the, the, you talked about the changing entities and that way you're buying the entity that owns the property. Is that correct? correct? 
Correct. How how do you I've heard this someone asked me this like last week and I was like you have to talk to your lawyer about it. It's a very complex yeah, strategy. Talk to your lawyer. How did you how how are you able to vet that this operating LLC is not going to bite you on the back end with liabilities you have no idea about? Yeah, so uh, attorney, um, attorney, you know, vetted just like they're they're looking at the property and the title and all that kind of stuff. They're vetting uh, that LLC, but then when you close, you actually close uh, you you purchase the LLC, but then you sell the LLC to another a new LLC that you uh, open oh. up, and so that helps a little bit to potentially mitigate some of those, you know, past skeletons. Um, right. But yeah, it, it definitely has a little bit higher risk to it. You know, if obviously yeah. if you're buying in your own entity, it's good, but um, man, it, it really can help uh, with some cash flow if, if your taxes are going to otherwise go up. Yeah. It's you know, it's a great strategy, but it's definitely an advanced strategy for everyone listening. Yeah. So speak attorney, to attorney. I, yeah. you have to have attorneys involved. Yeah. I mean, really anything we've talked about today, like you yeah, just want to make sure you're having attorneys involved in all your transactions and syndications and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So you've done a bunch of seller financing deals. What would you consider are the most important points that investors new to seller financing should focus on when looking for deals or speaking to owners and kind of getting them in, getting them ready for seller, you know, to, yeah. to do seller financing? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because I think really seller financing is going to be coming back. Interest rates mm -hmm. are, are skyrocketing. Sellers still want to sell, but they're going, man, uh, like I got this locked in at 3% or, or they paid it completely off and like, oh, I really want to sell this building. So there's, there's a lot of things you can do to get creative. Uh, one of the things actually we're doing right now, and then I'll answer your question. One of the things we're doing right now is with our syndications, we're actually, we, we say to the seller, like, look, what we're, instead of seller financing, because seller financing, let's just say we do a seller second. If I do full seller financing, no big deal, right? But a lot right. of times the seller doesn't want that much, like that's a lot of risk on their end. So, or they have a loan and they, the, the lender, you know, that just gets, complicated to do seller finance. So they say, look, I'll do a seller carry back. I'll do a seller second uh, for a certain amount. But what that does is that affects the DSCR, the debt service coverage ratio. And the lender will look at the second and say, look, we were going to lend you, let's say 5 million, but because of the seller second, we're only going to lend you 4 million because of the DSCR, because of the loan to value, that type of stuff. So here's what we're doing instead. We're saying, hey, Mr. Seller, we like this deal. We'll pay you, you know, whatever, $5 million for it. But we want you to do a seller carryback. But instead of a seller carryback, we're going to actually offer you shares into our syndication. And we're offering you an A share class at what's called 5% interest. Okay. So it's an A share equity, 5% interest. And we treat them as an actual investor. They show up on the cap table as an investor. So it's not a second mortgage. And so we then can get the full leverage that we wanted to on the property in the first place. So that's really complicated. Wow. 
method for those of you who don't really understand what I'm talking about. Some people will be like, oh, that makes sense. When other people are like, what the heck is he talking about? So I'm happy <laughs> to like go in more detail or just talk to people sometime in the future, <laughs> you know, as they listen to this and they're like, what the heck is this guy talking about? But it's legal. Yeah. It's ethical. It's, you know, it's totally okay to do, of course, again, with attorneys involved. Uh, but that's the way. So seller financing. Um, look, I, the biggest thing, why people don't get seller financing is because they don't, they don't ask. They just don't ask. Mm -hmm. They think they can't get it done with seller financing. So they just don't ask. We have every offer. Now we stopped this for a little time period just because the market got super hot and nobody wanted to do seller financing, but per, almost I think, I think we stopped it in like tw mid 2020. Okay. And, and, and then now we've started back up with seller financing terms. And so every offer we make, we, we make two offers minimum. Okay. The mm -hmm. one offer is us buying it with cash, you know, bank finance or whatever, just, just giving the seller their money. The other offer is some sort of seller involvement, mm -hmm. either the seller carry back, the seller equity, whatever it might be. And we show the seller what that financially will look like for them. Okay. And that's really important. So I don't want to just write an offer and the seller looks at it and goes, Oh, that, uh, what? I don't even want to think about that. No, I want to write an offer and I want to show the seller what they're making every single month. And then I want to write an explanation. Look, here are the advantages to doing this. The advantages you're not paying taxes up front. The advantage is, you know, uh, you're getting X amount of dollars per month, every single month here, you know, so we want to lay that out for them and then present that to the seller. And now you're usually dealing with brokers. So mm -hmm. if yeah, you so can get the broker to say the, the biggest, the thing we like to say is, look, here's the, here's our offer. We would like to set up a phone call between you, ourselves, and the seller to explain what we're trying mm -hmm. to offer here. Yeah. yeah. I've always found it when there's a broker involved, an agent involved, the seller financing gets isn't delivered properly. It's just, yeah. it always dies. If I can go speak directly to the owner, that's when I can pique their interest. Yep. Um, so it's, that's a, that's very, that's a great, uh, that's a great way of doing it. And I like having the two offers too. I've heard that before. The other thing too, you said about having the shares, I had, a, um, shares from the seller, uh, into a new syndication. I had a partner two years ago that did that and they were the, they were able to do it without any other money because they had the owner and they brought him on and it was kind of, it was a syndication really was just GPs and this guy is an LP, but they're also sharing on the upside, yep. which I feel is like you the could best do that thing too. of everything. Yeah, which is like one of the best things too with it is like what a selling thing. Like, hey, you know, you're not, you don't have to do any of this work, but you can like ride out the majority of the value of your property with us on our team. And now yeah. it's, you know, if you have someone that's, you know, not 85 years old that wants to retire, it's like, you know, someone is, you know, will take that little trip with you, then it'll work, I think. So, you know, everybody's got a different motivation for selling. Yeah. Everybody's got a different financial need. So you don't know that for the most mm -hmm. part going into it. So if, if 
they are represented by a broker, it's going to be tough to ask those questions. You certainly can, mm -hmm. but it's going to be tough to get the answers. A broker usually is not going to dive into the, the, the reasons. And it's, it's really hard to typically get to the seller, especially before you write your offer. Uh, so just don't assume that they will reject a seller financing. If you can get to the seller and you can talk to them, then those are some of the questions you ask. You know, what are your motivations for selling? What are you going to do with the capital? That type of stuff. And, you know, what are you going to do to avoid taxes? All that kind of stuff. And if you can get the right answers, you might go, okay, hey, look, we can formulate an offer that works for you and works for us. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So thank you for that. Uh, just one thing here, I was, I was, when I was doing some research for this episode and uh, you've been involved with so many different real estate classes and uh, you said you would advise or never advise anybody, new real estate investors or potential real estate investors to buy a duplex and become a landlord. Tell us, tell us why. Well, that is maybe me just uh, trying to say that to most people, right? Now, some people, I would say that's, go ahead, buy your duplex, buy your single family. That's, that's good. You know, but that is if you want to be a professional real estate entrepreneur, right? And, and so here's what I think is most people get into real estate because they think it's passive, because <laughs> they think it's a yeah. great way for me to have some passive income uh, I heard, you know, I know people that have had real estate, blah, blah, blah. And they think that that is going to be passive. And so they, what do they do? They buy a duplex or a single family house and they hate their life because here's what happens. You buy a duplex or your single family house and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, six months in or six years in, uh, the, the roof has a leak and you got to replace the roof. Okay. So that's, you know, $8,000 and or $10,000 now. Um, and, and you missed out on a bunch of cash flow for many years, because you're probably only making a couple hundred bucks a month, right? You're making two, 300 bucks a month. Maybe sometimes you're making less, right? So you're making a few hundred bucks a month. And so $10,000 later, man, you're talking years to just recoup that. Well, the roof springs a leak. That's good. You got that replaced. But lo and behold, the furnace goes out the next year. Well, $4,000 later, you got a new furnace and you missed out on cash flow for another year and a half or two years. That's okay. You got that taken care of. But then all of a sudden, the refrigerator and the stove go out and you've got to do that. And by the way, you had to evict the tenant because they didn't pay their rent. And so you got to get rid of them, but you were like, just trying to be really nice because they're just nice people. So you, you, you gave them some leeway. So it has been five months since they've paid you. And by the way, they've got kids and they're not getting out. And so now you got to file a writ on them and you got to get the sheriff to come and actually get them out. So now Six months later, they're finally out, but you go into the property, you find out they destroyed it. And so you got to renovate it and spend $6,000 renovating. And you can't find a contractor to get, jump on it right away. So they finally get there. 10 months later now, you've got a new tenant in there and it's really, really working out well. You know, so uh, by the way, like yeah. that's, that's the true story because yeah. that's happened to me. Yeah. 
And, and it's, so it's not passive and it oftentimes looks great on paper, but oftentimes mm -hmm. ends up not being, and you're like, this sucks. I hate tenants, toilets, and trash. And I'm going to bad mouth rental properties because I thought I was getting in passively. If you look, most mm -hmm. people that are getting it, have a good job, doctor, lawyer, attorney, you know, um, accountant, uh, who, whatever, engineer, what you name it, or, or a decent job, right? They get on, they have a decent job full-time. They got kids, they got, they, they like their free time. And then they hate freaking real estate because they thought it was going to be passive. And it's just not passive. It's just not, it's oh. just not passive. Oh, I'm going to hire a property manager. Well, guess what? You still have to manage that property. Yeah. Manager. You yeah. still have work to do. And so it's just, if you're going to buy real estate and you want to, be active. You want to be the entrepreneur, go ahead and buy the duplex, but otherwise buy a bigger building with a group with people that are doing this professionally. Um, whether it's a joint venture, whether it's a syndication, whether you're just going to invest in a REIT, whatever it might be. I think that to me, that is for the vast majority of the population. The 99% should yeah. be that it's, it's, it's running and operating a business if yeah. you're going to do it, if you're going to do it right. Yeah, no, that's, it's exactly true. And the other thing too, going back to that duplex example is that person's trying to save money. So they're managing themselves. So they're at that property twice a week, not getting paid for it for those yeah. five years. So yeah. it's an exactly correct example. So, so, so many people think that their return, oh, my returns though are so much better on my duplex or my single family house. Are they? Yeah. Cause you forgot to take, you forgot to pay yourself. Mm -hmm. You forgot to pay yourself for the maintenance, for the showings that you had to do for the late night calls from your, from your tenant, from, from, by the way, taking some time off some PTO from, from your work. You took time off that you could have done it as had as a vacation or take some sick time that you could have used otherwise to go to the property during the day because you've got a full-time job and you forgot to take all that into consideration. So okay. let's pay yourself and then figure out what your returns really are. Yeah. Your return on time. I mean, all these type of things, when you actually work it out, you're <laughs> right? going to see, you're like, wow, I do make like $65 an hour at my regular job. And somehow I make $25 here, you know, when I'm here, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, yep. But um, so Todd, what are the, what would you say are the main factors that have uh, contributed to your success over the years? You know, I, I think, uh, I think there's several things I, I would say just um, taking action. Like it, it's so easy to, to dream about stuff and so easy to think about doing it, but taking action is, is only, that's the only thing that's going to lead to results. Um, I think too many people fear failure. I'm definitely conservative. I'm definitely not out there writing a ton of offers on a on, on every single property and being aggressive. But look, you can't fear failure. Um, you have to just you have to get beyond that uh, belief of well, what could happen if? What could happen if? What can happen if? I mean, it's important to think about some of those things, but then come up with a plan. And again, if if you if you can get over your fear, then you're willing, or then you're able to take action. Um, so I think probably those two big things, uh, taking action and just, just pushing beyond your fear. I mean, there's so there's, there's lots of other little things, you know, we could talk about, but, but those are two big things, I think.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Todd. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Yeah. So a um, couple of different ways. I'm, I'm, I'm on mostly on, on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook. So go ahead and connect with me there. Um, endurusscapital.com is our website, E-N-D-U-R-U-S capital.com. My email is Todd at endurusscapital.com. The last thing is I have a podcast also, it's called Pillars of Wealth Creation. And so uh, would love to have our list, the, your listeners, of course, uh, after they're done listening with this, uh, listen to my podcast as well. Awesome, Todd. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and uh, looking forward to connecting with you uh, here in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you, Charles. Talk to you soon. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.